0: All right. Uh, I was told before class here that we have a question, so instead of uh, having our questions just at the end of class, we'll start off with question and answer this evening before we get into the lesson. And if we start off with questions, who knows if we'll ever get to the lesson? (laughs) 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 Let's let's have the question. Since you started, you know, we may never get. Uh,
1: You know, sometimes I mention. Simple things sounds dumb if you ask them, you know. Uh, but last week uh, you mentioned, uh, because in Corinthians, it's a shame for man to, uh, does not nature itself teach you, it's a shame for man to have long hair. And I mentioned Frank and Anne. how does nature teach you that it's a shame?
0: Well, that's, that is a good question. And so let me uh, let me start actually in Romans, and uh, we'll get there to First uh, Corinthians in just a second. But uh, come with me to the book of Romans, which we were going to get to tonight anyway, this section of Scripture, believe it or not, in, uh, in chapter 2. If you remember when we went through our study of the book of Romans, the first three chapters, or at least from the 18th verse of chapter 1 on down to about the 20th verse of chapter 3, deal with the proof that all men are sinners and uh, that they all need the mercy of God, and of course that connects with what we're talking about tonight with the um, the fall of man and the importance of the necessity of salvation for all men. So one of the things that comes up in this discussion about the condition of the human race and the need for salvation in proving that all men are sinners, uh the great distinction in the Bible is between the Jew and the Gentile, right? So you have to be able to demonstrate that both Jew and Gentile are sinners. So with the Jew it's easy enough if... The Jew has the commandments of God, and you can demonstrate that no man has kept the commandments of God, which is simple enough to do from the Scripture. We'll look probably later on this evening at the 14th Psalm and some other Scriptures like that, that teach us that uh, no man has ever kept the whole law. Well, that's simple enough for the Jew, but what about the Gentile? And this brings us to an important point of the Scripture that um, is lost on a lot of people even to this day that the law of god that's given in uh, exodus chapter 20 and following the, the law that was given to moses at sinai never did apply to the gentiles. Okay, and so when we talk about what if we were under the law well we and I don't as far as I know nobody here is jewish. Um, I could be wrong, but as far as I know nobody is. And so if we don't have any of that in us, then uh, we would have never been under the law of god. As a matter of fact, we would have been in much worse condition. We would have been under the conditions of another verse we might look at here tonight in a little bit in the book of Ephesians where it talks about how we were uh, strangers from the commonwealth of Israel. We were without the covenants and promises, without without God in the world. So we were in a worse state than that. But how do you condemn the uh, the Gentile who has never had the law of God, right? If you never had it spelled out for you in black and white, how do you have it? Well, uh, it it says here in chapter 2, verse 13, "...for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which shew the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another." they had the work of the law written in their hearts things that by nature they knew whether they were right or wrong now if you remember last week what we were we're talking about and we're going to come back to this story in just a little bit probably <laughs> if we <laughs> if we have time but uh, the what we were talking about is that there are certain commandments that don't seem to have any particular relation to nature they're just there because god says so and in particular the commandment in the garden of eden that they were not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that there doesn't seem to be anything about the nature of that tree that would have made it obvious that you weren't supposed to do that there are things in this world that seem to be obvious by nature okay and uh, you, you know one of the great examples of that has to do with the sin of homosexuality and it is a measure of how degraded people have become how seared their consciences have become that they can't even see that this is an obvious violation of not just the laws of God but of the laws of nature it's an it's an unnatural act you know that
1: was even a crime in roman times
0: yeah it's you know it it uh, it is an extraordinary thing in our day that we have not just allowed that act but even uh yeah we've even given it the the status of marriage uh, there have been certainly Societies in the past that accepted the act, but as far as I know, none of them ever permitted marriage. You know, we know that certain among the Greeks and different people like that did it. It, it, It's a a telling thing when you have something that was so bad that even Stalin and Hitler were against it. You know, and now we've learned to accept it. (laughs) That's right. You know, Uh, I mean, that's a pretty terrible thing. And, and, And the point is, and this is, this is, uh, this is a thing that is absurd just on the surface of it. If you, you don't, you don't even want to think about it, but if you do think about what is actually being done there, it's obvious that that's entirely against nature. And we have other things. I think if we want to go on in this vein, I, and I've said pretty often that I, I think there are probably two things that have become greatly accepted in America today that one day will look back on and think how absurd that anybody accepted one is the homosexuality and the other is abortion yeah. it's an incredibly unnatural thing that we've come to the point that a, a woman is willing to kill the child inside her own that's I think part of what the scripture was talking about when it said the time would come when they would be without natural affection and uh, that's what's going on there I think so those are things that are indicated to us by nature now if you want me to give you a hard and fast standard of how you know. The problem is that you can't. That's the whole point, right? Because it, it, it's your nature that teaches you this. Is The whole point is that there's not a law written down somewhere. There's just something instinctive in you as a human being that you can look at this and say, that's, that's not normal. And that's that's where we get actually into a sort of a scary place when people come to the point that they not only do not recognize the commandments that God has given that may not be obvious, right? Israel certainly had plenty of commandments that wouldn't have been obvious just naturally. I mean, God told them they weren't supposed to plant two different kinds of seeds in the same hill, you know. <laughs> that's, that's not obvious by nature. That just has to be something that God tells you, right? And there was, I'm not going to get into all that right now, but there was an important symbolic purpose to that law. It had to do with uh, mixing with ungodly people, right? That, that, that was kind of what was behind all of that. But um there are things that ought to be very obvious, and when those things cease to be obvious, that is a sign that a person has got so far from God that they can't, or it may be very difficult for them to hear His message. So if you come back to chapter 1, we have uh, two things in particular that are highlighted in this chapter as sins that separate man from God in a very deep way. And one of these, uh, if we look at verse 23, it says, "...and change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things." That's one thing, the sin of idolatry. Uh, That is actually a sin against nature, if you stop and think about it, because one of the most important functions of nature is that it ought to teach you that there is a God that this couldn't have just sprung into existence. That's part of the discussion in the previous verses. Verse 20 says, "...for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even the His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." The idea there is that even though you can't see God, the invisible things of God can be seen in things that are made. So the very existence of nature ought to be an indication there's God. And it ought to be a call to worship God. And actually, this, this is such a powerful truth. And we've talked about this, I think, a little bit before. Uh, Psalm 19, uh, talk about how the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament sheweth his handiwork. In other words, that just by looking up in to heaven, we ought to know there's a God. And it goes on in that same Psalm to say the, uh, the, 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 line has gone out into all the world, all the earth, all the world. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but, uh, the idea is that there's, there's no tongue, there's no language that they haven't reached to. It doesn't matter what language you speak. You ought to, just by looking at the world around you, know that there's a God, that things couldn't have come into existence by themselves. And when your mind gets so degraded that you can make something with your own hands and worship it as if it were God, I mean, you think about the absurdity. You worship something that you made instead of the one who made you. It seems like an obvious truth that the one who makes the other is the greater of the two. And uh, so that's what men have done with idolatry. They've worshipped the things they've made themselves. Well, that's something that could be categorized as not just a sin against God, but even a sin against nature. It just doesn't make any sense. And then, of course, the other sin that's emphasized in that chapter is the sin of homosexuality. It goes on in verse 24. And says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonour their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed for ever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And 28th verse is one of the most fearful verses, I think, in all the Bible. It says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. The idea there is that when men reject not just the written law of God, but even the things that God has put into nature, there comes a point where God turns them over to a reprobate mind, and He won't deal with them anymore. And I want to tell you, I think that there are probably more people in this world than we would like to think about who are already given over to a reprobate mind. And when you look around at the way some people behave in this world, the problem was they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It means, uh, basically disapproved, rejected. Debased. Debased, yeah. It, the, the, the general idea of it is if God gives you over to a reprobate mind, this is another area that we'll deal with a little bit later on. Man can't come to God unless God deals with him. And because the devil has blinded man, that's part of the fall of man that we'll talk about later on here tonight. And so if man can't come to God on his own, then the only way he can come is for God to draw him. Well, if God gives you over to a reprobate mind and says you're disapproved, yeah. you're cut off.
1: He don't, he don't draw you then, does he?
0: That's right. Yeah, that's uh, he's, you he, he's he's quit yeah. speaking to you. Yeah, he's you yeah. That's that's why. I, and I've I've told some of you a little bit about this story, and I won't get too deep into this here right now because I don't like to dig too much into personal experiences, but I've seen some strange things happen in church over the years. I'm sure you have, too, if you've been around long enough, and things that make you wonder. But we had a preacher came to our church one time to uh, preach a revival, and, and two different services. He, he got up and basically said he was only there because he had two friends that were there in the church, and that... Uh, the rest of the church basically was not fit to preach to. The Holy Ghost wouldn't let him preach in that place. He did that twice, and uh, and, I, and I guess thinking that that was a spiritual thing to do. But when you think about the implications of that, it's one thing to, to rebuke people and tell they're sinful. But when you tell them that God simply has no message for them anymore, the idea there is that you're reprobate, <laughs> all right. You know, and the scriptures say you have Christ except you be reprobate. And so if you're the children of God, and God refuses to speak to you at all, there's a problem there. There's a misunderstanding of the Scripture, I think. And so that's what the idea of reprobation is. Now, to get back to the uh, the particular question in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this has to do with, with hair length, and this is one of those things that uh, most people don't realize the Scripture even says anything about, I guess. And it's pretty much ignored nowadays. And you see all sorts of people on TV that are in Christian ministry. I'm talking about um, men that are claiming to be in Christian ministry and they've got long hair. Some of them singing on TV and got long hair. And... uh down in, yeah, I wasn't going to name names, but you know, there you go, <laughs> right, you, you might as well. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's right. uh, the 14th verse of 1 Corinthians 11 says, Doth not na- even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him, but if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. And... uh so somebody asked the question well how do you know that from nature and again the answer is if you don't know it from nature (laughs) there's a problem (laughs) right because things that you're supposed to know from nature you're not supposed to have to have an explanation that's the whole idea of knowing things from nature and if you get to the point where it where the, the nature of this doesn't bother you that that means that probably you're not in connection with the god of nature like you ought to be and uh it seemed up by the way this is why i don't believe that all the pictures you see of jesus are accurate because they always show him having long hair and that as far as i can tell was an invention of the late medieval early renaissance artists and it's not in true at all he also I'm almost certain didn't have blonde hair or blue eyes, alright, because he was, he was a Jew, a Middle Eastern Jew, you know, uh, that didn't have, as, as far as I can tell from the scripture, any intermingling of Northern European blood at all, okay. So, that would have been, uh, what he was, but the idea is that it, it ought to bother us. And you know, it, it is, it is strange, isn't it, that there was a time when long hair on men did bother people. Yeah. Yeah. Just instinctively, naturally. And for a lot of us, it still does, you know. And it, it is a, uh, there's something about it, isn't it? that that when a man has long hair, it never quite looks right, does it? I mean, you have a woman that has long hair, and it can be beautiful, and it is just not that way on a man. Yeah, that's
1: it's different, too, if you look at somebody that's in church that has long hair. Yeah. For me, you know, and then somebody that's a biker, which is, that's like their status. You, know? you expect them to yeah. have long hair. Yeah. Right. It may look Certain like Certain to protest or whatever yeah. they do it for.
0: Yeah, well, and that's that's sort of where long hair on men, at least in modern times, I mean, you know, there, there's history of people that had long hair and, and we can't. Uh, we can't try to navigate the entire history of long hair on men throughout the history of the world, but in the United States, in the last fifty or sixty years, it it really traces back to the late '60s, the hippie movement, and it has to do, and it and it was very much so uh, a symbol of rebellion, and very intentionally a symbol of rebellion against the culture, and has continued to be so. Uh, what's that?
1: Bob Seeger's song, Turn the Page. Turn the Page, okay. It talks about him having, <laughs> yeah, he's talking about... About having long hair and uh, somebody in a restaurant, I think it's, it's a restaurant or something, like that, is asking, want him to leave because he's gone. Well, is that okay. a woman or a man? Is that a woman or a man is a line in the song.
0: Uh, so, yeah, and that was that was sort of an attitude that people have, and, and it's kind of a scary thing that that is just about gone now, mm-hmm. that there aren't many people to think about because that, that teaches you something about How divorced we've gotten from the instruction of God in nature. A thing like that should have been obvious to us. And it was to many people, especially back then, they look at somebody like that and they say, well, it's clear that they're a rebel, you know. Mm -hmm. And even now, um, it's it's not so much rebellion anymore because the the rebellion is is more or less in control now and there's nothing left to rebel against. That's, I've, (coughs) (laughs) I've said said that a lot over the years that, that if you, have uh, kids today who want to get into some sort of teenage rebellion the best thing they could do is get saved and go to church because that's that's the rebellion against the culture <laughs> in the world that we live in today but uh we have come to this point where along with the other things i mentioned before that it seems like people have decided to just sort of let it go and they and, and we don't hear it's almost impossible for people even to understand the idea of natural law anymore Most people can't even comprehend the idea that there are certain things that are just true from nature. And this has to do, boy, I don't know how deep to go into this. (laughs) There's a thing going on in the world, and maybe I'll go into it a little bit, because it is is—it is a very important thing that's going on in opposition to the will of God, and most Christians aren't even deeply aware that it's happening. Okay, And it has to do with an academic movement that Connects with philosophers going back, you know, a couple hundred years. Uh, it, there, there's a there's a philosophical movement called existentialism. Ugh. And right, you know, most people hear the word and go, you know, <laughs> we're going to talk about philosophy. We talk about it because most people think, well, that's that's something the eggheads in the universities talk about. These crazy philosophy professors. Here's the problem: those things that the crazy philosophy professors talk about in their in their classrooms get settled down at least bits and pieces of it into the minds of their students and they get carried out into the society. And that's exactly what happened. Or
1: those teacher, those, you teach that student and that student goes on to teach your
0: children. Right. Yeah.
1: In the public school
0: system. And that's, and that's what happens. And it just permeates the culture. And so a lot of the, uh, a lot of the uh, major figures in pop culture have bought into this sort of thing. And, you, I mean, you could spend forever trying... No, I don't think anybody can even really define existentialism. It's one of those things, there's so many different versions of it that nobody can say what it is for sure. But the basic idea of it is that you don't have an essential nature that you can be whatever you want to make yourself be. And uh, so from this, and maybe not even from the really well-thought-out versions of this, but from the, you know, the sort of dime store philosophy that gets down into some of the kids that are half paying attention, you understand how this comes out. There is no God who has said, this is what you're supposed to be as a human being. I can go be what I want. Yeah. Taken to its fullest extent, you have the people that are out there today decided, and if they want to, they can be a lizard and get themselves all tattooed green and have scales put on their heads and things like that because, you know, they can be anything they want. And furthermore, it gets to the point where if you're born Male, you say, I don't have to be a man. If you're born female, you don't have to be a woman. You can make up your mind. The old order of thought was that God was in charge of nature, and if He made you something, you had an obligation to be the best one of those. If He makes you a man, you've got an obligation to be the best man you can be. If He makes you a woman, you've got an obligation to be the best woman you can be. You know, And, of course, none of us are created exactly equal. (laughs) All right, I know you know, Declaration of Independence. I've got a problem there with we're, it. We're not, we're not talking about equality in our standing before God. We're talking about equality in our ability. So when you say be the best you can be, you don't measure yourself against what the other person can do. You you be the best you can be with what God has given you. I
1: can be the best basketball player that I can be, but I'm never going to be Michael Jordan. Yeah,
0: that's right. That's exactly right. You know, and so we that that's the idea is that God made you individually for them. That is a beautiful thought, isn't it? that God that God made you individually individually for a specific purpose and gave you the skills and the abilities to do that. And you don't have to measure yourself against what anybody else did. You just fulfill the purpose that God gave you. Well, we've got a society today that's completely unmoored from that. And their idea is that you set your own idea of what you're going to be. And you can change it anytime you want. And is it any wonder that people end up getting so frustrated and angry and depressed because what you're doing is you're trying to fulfill A destiny that you invented for yourself, but you don't have the skills to do it because that's not what God made you to be. There, There is a very strong idea in the Bible that real contentment can only come from being aligned with the will of God. And no matter how much people may chase contentment in other areas, they never quite get there. They might pretend that they are. But the truth is, if you're in the will of God, you don't care about status or achievements or fame or money or anything like that all you really care about is that you're doing the thing that God made you to do and if you're doing that you can just live a contented life i think about that psalm where david talked about uh i will be satisfied when i awake with thy likeness and and uh, it's such a powerful thought isn't it? <laughs> that because and david you know in earlier in that psalm talked about some of the people around him that were attacking him and people that had great wealth and things like that and they they chased after things in this world. David himself certainly was a man of great wealth. I mean, he was the king of Israel during uh, the most prosperous prosperous period they ever enjoyed except for Solomon's reign after his. And so he was a man of great wealth. He was a man who had won great battles. He he had uh just about anything he wanted. And in the end, he realized that the only thing that could satisfy him was to wake in the likeness of God and have the image of God before him. And you find much the same thing with Solomon, assuming that Solomon really was the author of Ecclesiastes, and I think he was. You find a man who was even a little more wealthy than David. <laughs> I mean, God had apes and peacocks for pets, you know. <laughs> I mean, he, was, he, he brought in uh, one year 666 talents of gold. And a talent, nobody's quite sure what it is, but probably somewhere in the range of fifty to a hundred pounds of gold. And he had six hundred and sixty-six of them. Yeah. I don't know what gold's trading at right today, but generally it's maybe neighborhood of a thousand dollars an ounce. Oh, <laughs> that's a two thousand. Yeah, Nineteen something. Nineteen something. And he had six hundred and sixty-six talents. Wow. So six hundred and sixty-six times fifty at the least—that's what he brought in in a year. He was doing pretty well, you know. Yeah. I mean. And he writes that whole book of Ecclesiastes, and you find out that it's all dissatisfying to him. The pursuit of wealth was dissatisfying, the pursuit of pleasure was dissatisfying, and you, you come to the end of it, and you find out that the only thing that's satisfying at all is to serve the Lord.
1: Like my song, right? all
0: yeah, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Yeah. That's exactly what it was, and he finds out that all that sort of thing that you chase, and it turns out... That the only thing that cures the essential dissatisfaction of the human being is fellowship with God.
1: I think it's a truism, or I think it's true that when you... I've seen people post, you know, every person has a hole in them that yeah. only God can fill.
0: That's right. That's and I right. I think all
1: this seeking after reputation and, and money and, and the lust of the flesh is an attempt... To try to fill that hole that can only be
0: filled by God. I think if there's anything that you could state as true in this world is that a human being is, in his nature, a dissatisfied thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, everybody's searching for something, aren't they? It's not the same thing, you know. I mean, one person wants money and one person wants fame and one person wants the party life and one person wants the solitude up in the mountains and just to spend all their time hunting but nobody ever quite gets exactly what they want do we and the truth is the the truth is we get into so much trouble with this because we miss what the one thing is that we were created for and is lacking and so we never get this i honestly believe that's why so many people turn to drugs and alcohol they're looking for something that satisfies but it never really does and I guess that's as good a place as any to get back to the lesson for tonight because we've circled back around and actually made a pretty good introduction for it if you want to know the truth. So we'll come here to Genesis chapter 3 and learn how we got that way, all right? Here's, here's the thing. We looked at this passage, or started in a little bit last week. In His origin, man was created in fellowship with God. And of all the things that have changed in this world... From the Garden of Eden until now, the most essential one is just that, that man in his natural state in the Garden was in fellowship with God, and now he is not. And he needs a restoration of fellowship. And that's the story about what goes on here. In our original state, Adam is in the Garden. He's in a state of innocence. He has no sin, and uh, everything's perfect. The, The only thing that was lacking was god said it was not good that he should be alone so god made eve and cured that it's a perfect world as it as perfect as you can imagine and there's no sin it is honestly a hard thing for us to conceive in our minds isn't it we we talk about the garden of eden and we think about how wonderful it must have been to uh, not have any thorns or thistles or anything like that to deal with and have a life that seemed to be a pretty, uh, pretty easy kind of life to live. And we try to imagine what that must have been like, but I think probably the hardest thing to imagine about the Garden of Eden would be the same thing that's so hard for us to imagine about heaven. We we can't really conceive of a world without sin, can we? Because we've just lived in it all our lives. It's all we've ever known. We've never been free of it. And they were in the Garden of Eden. I mean, they had no, uh, not even just freedom from sin. They did not, I think, in the beginning have any idea of what sin was. Can you imagine a world where they had not only never disobeyed God, but it had never occurred to them to, apparently. It, it just had never crossed their minds, you know, that, was, that God told them things to do, and they went and did it, and it was just this sort of perfect relationship where there was no separation, there's no daylight between them and God ever. There's no nothing that ever separates them apart, and they have the perfect fellowship. And I think that that is the thing that all men and women today, whether they know it or not, are secretly longing for. Most people don't know that's what they're longing for, but that's really the thing that's missing in a person's life, is that deep fellowship with God. And uh, so they're there in this perfect state. We started into the story a little last time. The serpent, uh, evidently motivated by Satan there, or even possessed by Satan, you might say, comes down and begins to speak to the woman, which raises interesting questions in itself, doesn't it? That this, well, how does the snake talk? And uh, you know, if uh, Satan was moving it, the snake could talk. But you know that they. Eve doesn't seem to be surprised by the fact that the snake talks. And so it makes you wonder. I mean, there are all sorts of questions. Maybe, maybe it wasn't unknown for animals to talk during that period of time. Yeah, maybe, you know, it, it may have been that, that this was a common thing. You, we have scripture in the book of Romans that talk about how the whole creation groaneth and travaileth, uh, together until now because of what man has rotten. Man, uh, God cursed the earth because of man. And you wonder if, after man fell, God had to knock the rest of creation down to a level that man could handle a little bit. <laughs> that he wouldn't have been able to function in a world the way it was to start with. It may be, you know you wonder maybe maybe she wasn't surprised because you know maybe they'd had their seven days and this was just Sunday afternoon <laughs> on the eighth day. <laughs> and then she never knew that animals didn't talk. You don't. We don't know really. We don't know what happened. I mean, it could have just been something that. But anyway, the the, the snake comes up and talks. And you see the method of Satan, even from the very beginning, in drawing people into sin. He quotes God. Well, he misquotes God. And the devil has always been a master of the misuse of Scripture. That's one of the reasons why it's so important that we get grounded in what the scripture actually says and not what people say it says or think it says or thought it might have said. Not the traditions we build up, but what the scripture actually says. And I've told you before, I think one of the hardest things about uh, studying scripture is to find out not what the scripture says, but what it doesn't say that you always thought it did say. Yeah. Because somebody's always got some idea that this isn't, and this is in the Bible and maybe it's not. And uh, I am continually astounded at how much of what goes on in church has nothing to do with the Scripture, actually. And sometimes people get mad at you if you say that, but you know, you just say, show it to me in the Scripture. And so this the devil comes up and quotes uh, from God, except he misquotes. He says at the end of verse 1, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, notice the first thing he does. He makes God out to be a bad guy, restrictive, more restrictive than he really was. And down to this very day, this is one of the devil's great tricks, is to make the law of God more restrictive than it really is. You know that was the heart of what was behind the whole Pharisee movement? It really was. I mean, When you think about why the Lord got so mad at the Pharisees, they started out with the law, but they built all this other stuff on top of it. Now, God had commanded them that they weren't supposed to eat out of one particular tree, but He did not command them not to eat of every tree of the garden. So you have your first your first Pharisee. The devil's the first Pharisee. All right, we've got them right down to this day. People who add things onto the law of God that aren't really in the Scripture. Verse 2 says, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now, once you,
1: doesn't she misquote God there? She misquoted God too. She, uh, she wasn't even alive when God told Adam this. That's right. Yeah. And, and she said that you can't even touch it or you'll
0: die. Yeah. But God didn't tell Adam you couldn't touch it. Which leads to a very interesting question. Okay. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me say something about this, and then I'll come back to the question. He's already talking to her right. Screwed up telling her not the There's all sorts of things we don't know about the story. One of them is. Was this the first time Satan came and talked to them? Or maybe had he been building for a while? We don't know. But what we do find out is that somehow or other, and it may be from the fact that Satan had misquoted the Scripture, and or misquoted the the Word of God, to make it seem as if the Lord were more draconian than He really was, Eve gets the commandments sort of correct, but we find out that whatever had been planted in her mind, she also makes God out to be more restrictive than he really was. That thing there says, neither say you touch it. God never said that. He said you don't eat it. He said don't eat of it. He didn't say don't touch it. Now, this leads to the interesting question. Did this come into Eve's mind because Satan had suddenly pushed her that way by making thinking God, making her think God was more restrictive? Or is it possible that Adam Misinformed her.
1: They're playing a the game of telephone. And-
0: yeah, right. <laughs> or maybe, maybe Adam looked at it and said, you know what? I better tell her not to even touch that thing. Don't even- <laughs> God said we'd die. I better tell her not to even get close to it. <laughs> you know. But, <laughs> but the point is, see, 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 I want you to see how the devil's working. Because the devil's whole strategy here is to plant the idea in the person's mind that God is holding something back from you that you deserve to have. And the world is full of this today. This is the great appeal of every advertisement on television. It's the great appeal of all these sort of riots and rebellions we've got going on. It's that something's being withheld from you that you deserve to have. The sense of entitlement starts here in the Garden of Eden. And uh, so the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now I want you to understand that until this moment, it had probably never occurred to Eve that God was intending anything in the world but the very best for them. And this is what the devil plants in their mind now, this is a theme we want to come back to later, but I want to get this into your head to start with. If you ever wonder why it is that God has set faith as the standard to receive salvation, and you don't have to get all this right now; there won't be a test on it okay but and we'll talk about it a lot more later. but you know you know God could have chosen any kind of standard he wanted to save people the the blood of Christ was sufficient to save men, all men. And God, if He had wanted to, could have said, I'm going to save all men, or I'm going to save men who have black hair, or men who have blonde hair, but He could have chosen anything He wanted. The, the, the choice He actually made was to save those who believe on Jesus Christ. Now, He was free to save anybody He wanted. He chose to save those who would believe. And I have a notion, and I can't prove this 100% from Scripture, but it is an interesting thing to see that what actually is broken here in Eden is faith. Up until this point, they had completely trusted God in everything they had ever done. And this is the first moment where there's an idea put in their head that maybe this is not really what God is like. That He's holding out something from us. That we could try an alternate path from the one God has set for us. It had probably never even occurred to them that there was another way besides obedience to God. And now there's a suggestion that maybe... If you go this way, things will work out better. Is that not the heart of every temptation the devil puts unto man, even right down to the present day? That God said this, but mm, boy, it looks like if you try this other situation, wouldn't it be more fun? Wouldn't it feel better? Wouldn't it bring more advantage to you, more security to you? You know, we In my Sunday school lesson Sunday morning, I was talking about the sin of covetousness. And the heart of the sin of covetousness, I think, is this. It's that you don't trust God. It's a lack of faith. We want things so we can make ourselves secure. So we don't have to depend on God every day. And boy, if you can make yourself a god by eating of this tree, then you don't have to depend on God anymore. You can just do it yourself, can't you? Now, you see the absurdity of the devil's argument. If God actually made the world, and there was this tree that could... Raise these people up to the level of God and make them equal with Him. Why do you think God would have put it in there? <laughs> you know, does, does that ever occur to them that if this was really what was going on, uh, that that uh, why would God even give you the opportunity? But you see how the mind gets blurred by pride and ambition to get beyond what God has actually given. Was He testing the Yeah, I, th- I think that's a big part of the of what's going on here, and that's, that's partly why we mentioned earlier that this is not anything that is apparently natural law. It's just, you know, there's no obvious reason uh, from nature not to eat of this tree. It's just that God commanded. And so the test is, will you be obedient to God's commandment or not? I feel like
1: God is the parent in that situation going, because I said
0: so. That's right. <laughs> you know. It doesn't
1: matter why, just because I said so. Don't ask me anymore.
0: That is exactly right. And, and, and since you mentioned that, let me say that I think that that is one thing that's greatly lacking in, preaching and teaching of the Bible today with regard to sin, we've got in such a self-centered age, even in the church, that when you tell somebody they shouldn't sin, you have to explain to them why it's to their advantage not to sin. And we've lost the fact that, well, just God said so, (laughs) which ought to be enough if we really trust Him. He just said so. And that ought to be reason enough not to commit any sin that's listed in the Scripture just because God said so. What well, we
1: could do with a little bit of more of the Puritan mindset with I need to obey God because if I don't, he might smite me. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right. You know, and, and there is there is that element in the Bible. We saw some of that in the book of Hebrews when we studied through it. I mean, our God is a consuming fire. And there is a real punishment, a real chastening for it. And uh, just uh, also just the general idea that if you love God and he saved your soul, you ought to try to seek his will if you can and not wonder about why it is that way. But here's the result of what happened. And I think we've got time enough left to get into verse 6 here just a little bit. It says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, she has three particular motivations that are enumerated there in that verse. And you may remember when we studied the book of 1 John. And uh, in chapter 2 of that book, in verse 16, it says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Satan's world, his counterfeit kingdom and rebellion against God. And what his whole world is built on, the foundations of the whole thing are in these three matters, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. That's what his whole house of cards is built on, and the Lord's going to knock it down someday. But that's what the whole thing's built on. And I want you to notice the three motivations that Eve has to sin here The woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. It's all right there in the beginning, isn't it? And you know there was something introduced into the universe that I don't think had ever existed before right at this moment. Because uh, we know that the essential beginning of sin, we saw this a few weeks ago, Satan's sin at its heart was a sin of pride. And I actually believe that every sin that comes into the world has a certain measure of pride in it. There's pride to some degree in everything because if nothing else, every time you sin, whether you realize it or not, you're saying to God, my way is better than your way. And so there's pride contained in every sin, isn't there? But we see something worked out here that Satan never had. Satan would never have had lust of the flesh, would he? Because Satan didn't have flesh. Satan's a spirit. It took a human to have lust of the flesh. And what you see is how the principle of sin, once it gets into a thing, just ruins the whole thing. It works the ruin of the whole thing. Even though man is body, soul, and spirit, Satan evidently is only spirit, once he gets his principle of sin introduced into the person, it corrupts the flesh too. And so we now have lust of the flesh entered into the mix. Well, It says in verse 7, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now that's a fascinating little verse there, isn't it? These people who we have reason to suspect had what we would now consider superhuman intelligence, you know. Didn't know they were naked and the reason they didn't know they were naked was because they didn't know what clothes were, right? <laughs> the idea of, If the idea of clothes had never been introduced, you don't know what naked is. No animal has an idea of being naked, do they? Because they don't know about clothes. And here's the thing. You think about what sin brings into the world, and I mentioned this here one time before, I think. The truth is, right, that at this moment there was no sin, and then being naked, it was just a husband and wife there together, all there were. And uh, there was no nothing wrong with it. As a matter of fact, I think there's reason to believe that they wanted these clothes not to hide from each other, but to hide from God, <laughs> Okay, <laughs> because they saw their impurity before God. But I have an idea that it, it would probably be true that if sin had never entered into the world, they could have been fruitful and multiplied, and all down through the ages, everybody could have walked around naked and there never would have been any sin. Because the the nakedness itself is not the sin, it's the lust that comes from it. And if man had never fallen, you could have a situation where nobody ever had any desire but their own husband or their own wife, and you'd never have to worry about the thing. I kind of wonder, you know, if Adam was with her
1: very clearly at 6, or yeah. with her, he didn't intervene. He didn't say, well, hang on a minute, that's not how God said it. You know, yeah. Was, he didn't, no, don't eat that. I don't want He didn't. He didn't anything
0: according to what we see here. John. Yeah, that's interesting. And let, let me let, let's say let's talk about that. We've got a couple minutes left. Let's get on that, and then we'll come back to the close maybe next week. <laughs> all right, we'll pick up with that next time. What was Adam's role in all this? He evidently wasn't there when she committed the sin. And exactly what happened with Adam, we're not told about how all that happened. But we do have. A little bit of a hint about that in the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2, it says in verse 14: And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now that's a pretty stern condemnation of Adam if you think about it. Eve was deceived, Adam was not deceived. Eve. He willfully sinned, right? We have uh, with with Eve, and we've talked about this some before and we'll talk about it more again, but there is a distinction in the Bible between sins of ignorance and willful sins. And Eve got deceived. I don't think she sinned intentionally. I, I don't think there was a thought in her mind necessarily that I'm disobeying God. As a matter of fact, Satan may have even been clever enough to convince her that that was what God really wanted her to do, you know, and there may be an element of that in it. But Adam knew what he was doing. He was not deceived, and the motivation for that is interesting. You can try to figure out what was going on there, but the most likely explanation is that um, this may have been the first instance where somebody had a false idea of love that got the whole world into trouble. And we've talked to Pierre before about how the world has such a difficult time with understanding what real love is, and it may be thought, well, I love her so much if she's going to that fate, I've got to go with her. And we can't get separated. She's in this condition now where she's apart from God, and I can't leave her out there alone. But it is an interesting thought, and you know, you could get together with a whole band of theologians and debate this and figure out if there's any truth to it or not. But what was needed in this world to save a person from sin was the sacrifice of a sinless man. And Adam at that moment was still a sinless man. And it raises the possibility that he could have been the sacrifice to save Eve from her sin if he'd understood what real love was and so you you see the ruin that sin brings into the world it's just one domino after another once the thing starts to fall once once the first little disobedience to god comes in the whole thing just starts to crack and fissure and you have the mess we have today you know and uh, so that's what happened with adam there well we'll leave it there for tonight next time we'll come back and we want to talk more next time about Uh, the story of Adam and Eve and what all that brought into the world, and then especially the, the fallout of it for now, because that's what we're really interested in as far as the connections to the rest of the Scripture. This is the story of why we are all sinners and why we all need salvation in Christ. When we get a clear understanding of the fall of man, we'll understand why all religions aren't equivalent, right? Why we're not all worshiping the same God, why there is no salvation in anybody except Christ. There is a very specific problem we have that can only be solved in a very specific way, and it has to do with the sacrifice of Christ. No other religion has that. I just saw today that our uh, one of our senators was talking about. Uh, didn't really matter what religion you believe because we're all worshiping the same God anyway. You could be. A, it didn't matter if you're a Catholic or a Muslim or whatever. They were talking in the context of potentially having a, a Catholic nominated to the Supreme Court. And how people shouldn't make a big deal about that, which in the context of the civics of this country I agree with. But the idea that it doesn't really matter whether you're a Catholic or a Protestant or an Evangelical or a Muslim or whatever or a Jew, it doesn't really matter because we're all worshiping the same God. That's not right. All is not the same God as the God of the Bible. And there are essential contradictions there to get down to the most basic one. The heart of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he's the Son of God and died to pay for our sins, and the Muslims consider that a heresy. Well, how can we have fellowship with that? (laughs) You know, and you can call us bigots or whatever you want to do. I can have
1: fellowship with a Catholic. At least they understand that there was a sin and a sacrificial death that needed to happen. Yeah. And a virgin birth.
0: You You can go that far with them. Uh, They, they, where we lose, where we, lose our company with them is that they really get into a work salvation. But, uh, the point I want to make as far as what we're talking about here tonight is the fall of man is an essential part of that story. If the problem is that we are sinful creatures, what we have to have is a a redeemer. And other religions don't have a redeemer. So that's what we'll start to get into next time. Anybody have any uh, questions or comments? I never thought
1: that Adam, I never had that thought that he could have been Eve's redemption. Yeah, you know, and and
0: the scripture never says that. I mean, I, you know, I'm just I'm just speculating, right, a little bit. But we do know that part of the the premise of Christ coming as a redemption was that you had to have a, a perfect, sinless sacrifice. And we do know that a perfect, sinless man could die to pay the price of sin for somebody else. You know, and and he could have, and so we think maybe he could have. You know. Yeah. like i said we don't don't quote me on that as a dogma no, no, <laughs> right right but but it's just something to think about you it know is uh, to think about. yeah had he loved her the way god loved her yeah. he would have been willing to be Eve sacrificed. sacrifice right well, he's
1: probably never But to us ever. we're we're willing to we don't have that same I do, we don't have that love. Yeah. Agape love. Would That's right. I be, yeah. Would I be willing to do that for us, or would I be just giving me the fruit and I'll eat it too? You
0: yeah. know what I mean? So. Yeah. You know, and, and that, that really, um, I mentioned that in my Sunday school lesson a week or two ago, the difference between brotherly kindness or brotherly love and agape love, real charity. And, uh, I think that, Probably it's true that in a lot of our churches, we've got as far as brotherly love, but that next step up to charity is a hard step, isn't it? Well, Mark, the Bible
1: teach that a man should be willing
0: to die for his wife? That's right. Uh, matter of fact, it teaches we all ought to be willing to die for one another. Not the woman for the man, Well, actually, in the church, we're all supposed to be willing to die for one another. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, the the, uh, the Scripture teaches that the man ought to love the wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it and uh so that shed some that shed some light on Adam and Eve <laughs> you know but uh, but it, it is it is a, probably a truth that most of us in the church would be willing to do a lot for each other we'd be willing to give of our time and of our financial resources and of our labor but if it came right down to the point of dying for one another well it would be a tough test wouldn't it we never know until we that. That's right yeah you never know until you put in the situation
1: I guess i had a test yeah
0: He uh it's interesting to think about what his motivation may have been and it's you know, like I said, a lot of that is speculative because the scripture doesn't the scripture doesn't even directly uh speak of the exact moment that Adam partook of it, I guess you'd say.
1: So it doesn't sound like she came over like, "Oh no, I found it somewhere else." Yeah, I mean, look at this fruit I found laying it, on the ground.
0: It seems it seems clear that Eve must have known exactly what she'd done in the situation she was in, and then said, "Why don't you eat it too?" or something like that, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, it wasn't like she just sneaked it in on him and said, "You know, I, I fixed I fixed some fruit for supper tonight, and here it is." I mean, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like you do, kids, like
1: have vegetables underneath. Yeah
0: and uh, we'll we'll talk more next week about about the consequences of what sin did but i'm led to believe that the very moment she took that first bite she was fully aware that she had fallen from god and you know she must have been in can you can you imagine the mental state you must have been in you know we 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 uh we believe in our baptist churches in the security of the believer and so believing that, I suppose these were the only two people who ever fell from grace. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> who were ever right with God and fell out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting sort of thing to think about what they must have had in their hearts and minds at the moment they did that. I wonder if it
1: was similar to the conviction that we feel. Yeah,
0: probably, probably a degree beyond that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> cause, cause, you, know, you know, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to actually be in a state of perfection and then lose it.
1: Okay. And then have a sudden knowledge
0: of it. Yeah, and then to be completely aware And to go from a state where they apparently walked in fellowship with God to now being terrified of him, as we'll see next time.